Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. This week, our guest is Janelle Newman of The Script Project, and we'll be talking about the current state of film exhibition. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania. And I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. Welcome to you, Janelle Newman. Thanks for being with us today. Very much. So um, John came across the script project and as soon as he did and we took a look at your website, we were just like, wow, this is awesome. And we thought we have to have you as a guest on the podcast. Um, We tend to have local creatives and people in film, but also different artists and musicians. But your project just seems so unique. And we want you to tell us a little bit about it. But let's talk about you specifically. You know, we checked you out a little bit. And, you know, you seem to have a background in education, but it's a fascinating background in in linguistics and education. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a long history in Northwestern Pennsylvania. Um, You have your PhD. So are you native of Western Pennsylvania? Tell us about your education. Where do you come from? Okay, well, there's a lot there, but so you can pick around. (laughs) You can pick around with if I say something that you want to ask more questions about. Um, so I wasn't born in Erie, but I, I was born near Boston, Massachusetts, but my mom was born and raised in Erie. And honestly, she couldn't live very long outside of Erie. So they tried to move to Massachusetts. Uh, they, you know, my mom and dad tried to move there, but she just couldn't make it right. She had to come back to Erie. It was even traumatic when she moved from the east side of Erie to the west side of Erie. So she was just really, you know, ingrained in Erie. So I did grow up on the Lower East Side, attended Holy Family School, and I actually went to Academy High School. I was part of the SPAVA, the Performing Arts Program at the time. Now it was, I was there one year, Academy closed, we moved to Central, but I continue to be part of the performing arts program from the music perspective. So I have that connection to the arts as well. I grew up as a dancer, started at Bayfront Ballet. I think that's by the MLK Center right down there near Chestnut. And I went to Long School of Dance. So I definitely have the arts in, in my background, you could say, in my blood. My husband and I still play music. Well, not currently, but we do do like duos and trios around the city under some different musical names. So still involved from that perspective. I guess that's a long way around to say that, yes, I grew up mostly in. How did you come to being an educator? So I actually started as a music major when I went to college and um, music is music performance and, and music education. I was really inspired by uh, someone who's still a local music educator. Her name's Susan Huster, uh, and she's given lots of, you know, voice lessons around uh, the area. She also teaches I believe she still teaches at Collegiate Academy. Um, And so that was just a really big influence on me growing up. And I decided to pursue that for my education. Well, I got into it. I started West Virginia University and I realized I just didn't want to sing opera for the rest of my life. And I it, it didn't seem like a good fit for what I was moving towards. I've always been someone that really likes to think big. 
and see it from a global perspective. So I sometimes have a hard time narrowing things down because I am interested and curious in a lot of things. And in my brain, I can see how everything is, is fitting together. And anyway, so I decided that well, music education wasn't gonna work for me, but I still was really passionate about being in the classroom. I really enjoyed working with young people. So I transferred back home to Gannon University and did my um, bachelor's degree in elementary education. And then from there, that's when I started actually leaving the US and I had some experiences around the world teaching English as an additional language, which I think really opened my eyes to the value and importance of culture and allowing spaces for that cultural expression to happen, allowing or trying to encourage more awareness of different cultural perspectives and not just um, kind of seeing the US as a melting pot, but rather as more of a mosaic where we can exist in our cultural expressions, but exist together and that our strength is in our individual diversity. What is then the script project? And do you think it's, do you think that that is a natural culmination then of your work in culture, as you say, language and education? For sure. And it's something that I was, I feel like I was working towards anyway. You know, I've been involved in different areas in education. I'm currently back in the district as um, a, an English language development teacher. I've worked in higher ed, leading programs for uh, either English language learners or educating, you know, uh, teachers or future teachers for, for language learners. And so I was doing a lot of work in literacy, but particularly culturally responsive literacy. So that's a word, this idea of culturally responsive or culturally sustaining. And that really, I think, is the heart of what the script project is trying to support and facilitate. So, and a lot of, a lot of times we think of our, ourselves as in the script project and, and our board, we really talk about how can we create space Spaces. spaces for more understanding, spaces for more sharing. And so that we can maybe kind of facilitate, not necessarily create, I would say, but facilitate and support spaces where that understanding can take place and that where that understanding can maybe move out into the bigger world. So we've approached it from a lot of different perspectives. I think even within our, our own little uh, project and our own little board. Um, we've, we did some, uh, not really events, I guess, I guess events. We had an event at Mercyhurst around Black Lives Matter um, at school. And we did that, this was, I guess, right before kind of COVID hit, that was January, February, and where we're, we invited people from the community to talk about uh, their experiences as a uh, Black Eriites, right, and, and what that was like in, in the school system for them and for their children and for the work that they do with young people. And then we had a, a discussion after that. And then we moved some of our events online as well. So we did um, a, I guess, just a meeting uh, to talk about what colorblindness is and how it can be uh, kind of problematic or a lot of people go into and I, speaking from an educator standpoint, you go into education and you hear in your education classes that, oh, okay, well, colorblind perspective, that's how you're going to actually treat everyone equally and give everyone uh, a fair a fair shot. And really, mm -hmm. we have to kind of unpack that idea of how 
colorblindness can actually be a problematic perspective and hurt young people that are on uh, the receiving end of that. So we did some things with that. We did some things with the um, African-American um, history tour that uh, Mr. or sorry, Dr. Chris Majak from Mercyhurst and I know a lot of other people from the city, Johnny Johnson and Gary Horton, and I can't remember all of the names involved in that, but that that oral history kind of thing. So we, we've mm -hmm. done some some work with them as well as and trying to facilitate, you know, again, these spaces for understanding, which is what I think maybe the project that, that drew you to us may have been our our project we've been working on this year is trying to kind of collect some youth voices about COVID experiences. So I'm, I'm really excited that you saw that because we really hope to get a lot more entries into that. So mm -hmm. I'm pretty excited that, that you saw that and that you were interested so we could talk more too. Can we uh, just really quickly back up and take us a little bit through the Black Lives Matter uh, program that you put on? Um, I'm curious, what are some of the outcomes that you've seen? Were there any surprises? And how do you go about choosing um, or do people apply? I guess, what's the process of finding these voices in the community? Do you look for certain zip codes or is it kind of open to whoever's interested? Things like that. So the Black Lives Matter at School event that we put on, that was last year or no, this year, but early this year. And that was I, I feel like a lot of things we kind of just come across, right? So, oh, I saw this and I read this and this is timely and we need to do something about this. And we're a small enough nonprofit right now that we have that flexibility to kind of react to, you know, a lot of things that are happening around us. So um, we worked with our board. Uh, Juanita Stokes was on. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She was on the board at that at that point. And she just did a fantastic job of organizing some speakers from the community, bringing, bringing together some people from the community uh, to meet up at Mercyhurst for, for that evening. So it was a, a lot of discussion and just understanding, trying to understand new perspectives. So it was a, it was, I was pleasantly surprised at the um, turnout from our black community in Erie. And I, it was just a fabulous night, I think for, for everyone that, that attended and not, and just hearing again, really hearing different perspectives because we need to hear other people's stories. And I think part of the script project is that idea. Like we have these stories in our head about what life or what, what things should be these narratives about um, how justice fits into our lives. But until we hear different perspectives, different realities that as a white person, I might have ideas or and that really I don't know enough about a black community or the communities of color in, in especially in our area. So I'm going in with this narrative, this script in my head. And unless I'm hearing other stories and other perspectives, that's going to stay the same. So we need that our scripts changed and flipped really to, to accept the fullness that we have in, in our community and in our world, ultimately. One of the things that um, caught my attention was that one of your goals is to address race and creating spaces. That idea, I really like, I guess I have a a preconceived idea of what creating space means because I worked for a nonprofit almost 20 years ago now. Woo. Um <laughs> that did the same thing that that kind of the mission was creating safe social spaces so education and workplace and community mm -hmm. in in a workplace so how do you see the script project 
working to create a space in a workplace that addresses race? So I think right now, um, a lot of workplaces are looking for, you know, DNI diversity and inclusion or DEI diversity, equity, inclusion, or sometimes people add the A for anti-racist kind of mm-hmm. programs out there. Like the Script Project, it, our goal is not to be uh, to go into businesses and, and speak or train. We can do those things, but that's not really our focus. Um, we really want to have spaces where uh, we can unpack ideas that maybe a speaker is talking about. So our idea is, okay, you have your business. You're going to bring in uh, maybe your main speaker. We have amazing people in the community that can that can speak to these issues, especially people of color. You don't necessarily desire a white person talking to you about anti-racism. Like I know there's a there's a place for that. Like if we're if we're talking about affinity groups, but that's not where we see the, I guess, the role of the script project. Ours would be to come in and to say, okay, you heard these things. Now let's reflect on them. Now let's connect them. Now let's really talk about them. Because so often, and you probably know even in when you have workplace training or professional development or continuing education or whatever, it's like, okay, I'm going to watch this webinar. Check. I'm done. Right. And we're trying to really push those ideas. We don't, that's not going to make change in terms of racial justice in our world, those kind of experiences. So we, we know that those happen. So maybe we can be an add on to that where facilitation. And again, that, that kind of space can can take place and start to take place. But these are difficult conversations. I mean, I've done some training with a group called Courageous Conversations. Uh, that's something that started in education, but they also kind of have branched out into the workplace as well. And um, it's been a transformational experience for me as being part of that, but it has also really helped train me and help develop my skills in having kind of difficult conversations, not just about race. I mean, we do, I think race is kind of the foundation because I think you have to, I think you need to start there. Um, But there's all different kinds of uh, diversity and marginalization that's happening in our world. So ultimately the script projects especially wants to address those areas of intersection. Uh, So when we talk about LGBTQIA issues, how does that intersect with race to make a very unique experience that could marginalize a person? So now with COVID, are you right? <laughs> like, That's all yeah. I can say. now with COVID, yeah. Now it's COVID times <laughs> and students, okay, let's say you have students like high school students. Mm-hmm. They're probably maybe the, would you say high school students are the most empowered at this point to use their phones or use some sort of technology in order to write a script and create a story? Right. Well, I hope so. I mean, we see TikTok, right? <laughs> so, sure. Like, I mean, how sure. can we? Get, I'm trying to, let, but there's there. Like, how can we harness that energy and all that stuff that's happening? Right. TikTok, well, I mean, right? yeah. with COVID, with the script project, like, what is your goal right now with with the COVID uh, script project? So, I think that our the one thing that that brought up with you or that you guys probably saw was the the current project, which is kind of collecting, yeah, these stories of COVID that we can put together in a digital format. Also would like to have, I mean, if we have enough um, 
you know, enough entries and enough money to put together kind of uh, also kind of a nice magazine. And we hope that this would just be the beginning of future editions of this too. So that this would just be the kind of goal to, to start with. Um, we did release it actually in June, uh, this, this idea in June, and we did some, you know, just social media promotion, but it was really a tumultuous summer. And uh, a lot of people may not have been thinking about that, but rather about the experiences of George, George Floyd and all the other um, instances of police um, brutality that have been brought in, in, that, in the media cycle and brought to, um, not that they weren't always happening, but were brought to a new level of attention. So um, yeah, I think that's, that's one of our, so that's our main push at the moment. Our other push in 2020 when we have raised money is we're putting together scholarships for people of color that want to pursue teacher certification. So we've been um, collecting some money for, for that because again, it's that representation in, in spaces where, uh, you know, the amount of, or the number of teachers of color in, we can look in our local districts is, is pretty abysmal in terms and relating that to population, the population of students is, is pretty sad watching that and there. And so we hope to be able to support that because in the end, we believe that's going to help also create more culturally responsive and culturally sustaining spaces in back to, and that's back to education. Can a teacher get a certification um, with a, do you have to have a four-year degree to have a teacher certification? Uh, early childhood, no, but in, oh, okay. early, yeah, I mean, in terms of like, there are kind of like, I don't want to say smaller degrees, but you know, you can get like a certificate connected to early childhood, but to be an elementary teacher to work in like a K through 12 school itself, rather than a daycare, you do need uh, at least a, a four-year degree. Sorry, that was an off-topic oh. question because I was still, I had another question about the the goal of the script project. So you said magazine. So are, are is your goal to then take the COVID store, I say COVID project, to take okay. the, the, the stories and, um, and put them together in a magazine that you'll release digitally? Will you release that via email or social media or on the website? I think it depends on the kind of projects that we get. So if we, if it, you know, if we're getting more film based or dance based or something like that, then the actual magazine won't work as well. But I'm hoping that we get enough to have even some different platforms to expose those, those stories. Oh, cool. I was just going to say, we, we had a program, this is a while back now, and I'm sure Erica's thinking of it as well. It was called Eerie's Voices. And I'm wondering if, because it sounds like you're really flexible as far as uh, mediums and whatnot. So yeah. I'm, I'm just curious if, you know, film and video is a, is a part of your um, future plan, you know, as an opportunity, as you were saying, to use more platforms to amplify those voices and at the same time, you know, teach tools, not just for one to express themselves, but maybe depending on what career um, they will go into you know, to give them some skills that way as well. Editing, producing. I'd love to hear more about your project. And yes, let's collaborate. <laughs> it's about new things. I'm getting, you know, again, new new perspectives, voices kind of coming together. So I mean, that would, that would be wonderful. I mean, we have some long-term ideas with the script project to, you know, develop some 
whether it might be some kind of, I don't like to say online training because they sound so boring, but to be <laughs> some, something where people can, you know, interact in the online environment around these topics, not just kind of Zoom meetings, but something that would be um, maybe you could get official like continuing education credits for or professional development credits for. But really, I, I you know, again, I've been through and, and I mean, you've been through so many bad professional development experiences that don't really amount to anything. And so I don't want to create anything that would just be reproducing that. So I'm always looking for thinking for new ways to envision kind of traditional things that just don't seem to be working very well anymore. I mean, I love the scholarship idea. That's definitely um, an angle I haven't heard before, Erica. I'm not. I'm not sure about you. Yeah. I'm wondering your community. Um, how much success you've had? I know you haven't been around like a long time, but you know what kind of reception have you gotten from the Erie community in general? Um, and maybe where are you looking for more additional help? We a lot of our presence has been really with our Facebook has been kind of the the center of that and and how we're kind of trying to develop our community. We also have a, a board at the moment that really in, includes people from different diverse parts of our Erie community. So a lot of our the way that we get information out is through our board and our board reaching out to the communities that they're involved in. I mean, it's it was really important. The nonprofit world is really white. I mean, I'm just going to say that. Um, and a, I mean, the majority of nonprofit uh, executive directors, including myself, are white, right? So it was something that we were really cognizant of when we started this project. Like our board could not be we did not want a board that was primarily white, which is the, a lot of board, a lot of the boards of nonprofits, you know, in Erie. I'm not saying all. I mean, there's some great nonprofits that are doing culturally responsive work, and I don't want to, you know, downplay anything, anything that they're doing. We just saw that there, there still was a space for more work to be done, um, really focusing on, you know, bringing in different perspectives, not not like the nonprofit coming in and saying, this is, you need to do things this way, this way, this way, but really listening and creating that, creating that space for sharing and uh, listening. It's good advice for all of us. <laughs> yes, it is. So if you're interested in providing professional development and some kind of tangible proof of that professional development, here's a certification, here's something that you can take and prove to somebody, hey, you can hire me because of this certification. Um, so a scholarship for that. Yeah. If you're working with a high school student, certainly a little bit of money toward college or some other kind of technical training, something that, you know, to further their education in some way, even if it's, you know, in the case of go back to like film education, producing, mm -hmm. editing, something for their real, you know, even that is valuable to show I have created this. Mm. I've learned how to do this skill and I have created this. That's, that's actually quite valuable in, in filmmaking to show you've done something. It's a really, I think John would agree with this. Um, to say you want to do something is often very different from showing someone that you have done something, just kind of getting out there and trying it. John will tell you as a filmmaker that he did a, he's done a lot of 
projects before he actually made a movie that gave him money to make. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's all, it's all uh, practice and training. I mean, I, you know, I love pro providing, providing people with the outlet and letting them understand that, you know, their, their voice is power, right. And that people need to hear um, their stories and perspectives. And that's kind of like, I mean, I find myself as a teaching artist, a lot of times that's like the first step, right? That's the first success. Just, yes, you, you need to tell your story. Don't, don't be afraid to, to speak out. So, but, I mean, yeah. the project. Definitely. Sounds... We actually had a grant for that. The topic. So you, you talked about Black Lives Matter, which is a fantastic topic to cover. The topic we were focused on, it was a combination of a combination of skill building with filmmaking, telling the stories of peer aggression. So students were talking about aggression between their peers that wasn't specifically focused around race or gender, truly just, I guess you could say bullying between between their peers, but specifically an issue like black light, you know, race, racial injustice is an, is a very timely issue to, to do. So, I mean, you could actually take the program that we did and build curriculum. That's the, that's the part of it that you could get funding for is yep. actually building, writing a curriculum or taking curriculum that's already been written. Mm -hmm. Um, and engaging with another organization that has that and potentially getting money that way, partnering with that organization and saying, hey, we've got a partnership with an organization that's having a having multiple partnerships going on and, and getting funding because of those partnerships is something that you could potentially do. Um, yeah, nonprofits partnering up too is something that I'm sure you know, Janelle, grant, grant uh, awarders <laughs> like love. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, before this turns into like an official meeting and <laughs> I know, do I have to pay you for consulting? Because this is great. I mean, I'll take it. I'll take it all. <laughs> How can anyone that's listening to this podcast get to know more about what you're doing and, you know, uh, learn more and follow and uh, how can anyone support what you're doing? So I think if, you, if you're interested in what we're doing, I would say first, just follow if you're a Facebook person, follow our Facebook page. It is, is our kind of main social media. We're trying to do Twitter and Instagram and those kind of things as well. But I will say Facebook is kind of the hub at the moment. So you should be able to find us pretty easily on Facebook. If you look for the script project, it's not the purple icon. It is a, looks like a little speech bubble or a thought bubble. So you can find that there. And then our website too, uh, thescriptproject.org. And there's information information there as well. Um, there's our email and everything that is on there. There's also this information about our COVID call or whatever we want to uh, refer to it. So please share widely. We've extended the deadline to uh, December 31st. So we're hoping to get some um, projects before then, maybe even over Christmas break, since who knows if we'll be visiting people with COVID. So <laughs> we may have some time on our hands. Um, and the project is really focused on K through 12 or recently graduated uh, students. So we really are interested 
you know, my daughter's in kindergarten, she can produce some, some great stuff. So we're really looking for anything that is inspired by that COVID experience for young people. So that could be just a visual work of art, right? That, but that, it doesn't need to be that. It could be a poem, it could be an essay, but it could be a short film, or as I mentioned, a dance, a musical creation, something that's that's really been inspired by this experience that has been pretty taxing on all of us. I know we're tired. <laughs> we're just kind of tired. <laughs> yeah, and it's and, really shown the weaknesses and the inequality in our society even more, right? It's yes. Just just highlight, I mean, in healthcare and education. What plans do you have for the other side of COVID? Like what are some uh, areas, some areas you're looking at or groups? Maybe we'll have some listeners um, that may be, uh, you know, groups that you're looking for in the future. Maybe well, you can give us yeah, a preview. We're hoping to get some people together in person again, you know, having some events where we can, you know, not necessarily have like a panel discussion, but have small group discussions around around topics that, um, again, are timely, but that are demonstrating intersections of race and gender and ethnicity and language and, and those kind of those kind of things. I really would like to, and I started this a little bit because I do sometimes do trainings for educators around around the area, but trying to get educators together and really to commit to how can we make our classes more culturally responsive and culturally sustaining? What kind of strategies can can we use? What what kind of climate can we create for, for these things to happen? And just to brainstorm and troubleshoot and then all of those kind of things. Um, I think those would be what we're looking forward to in the post uh, COVID world. But in the meantime, uh, our recent, just recently we've been when doing some Zoom trainings. Our, our board president did a training for the nonprofit partnership. Uh, I recently did a training for um, intermediate unit IU5. Uh, so we're, we're busy doing, uh, again, those, ki those kind of things and trying to just spread awareness of just things that are happening in our world. And that's what you'll really get on the Facebook page. We'll share events there, but we also try to really share timely stories and news that maybe are a little bit different than what you're hearing, but just around this, again, how can we understand different perspectives more and, and how can we understand each other more? Your training with the nonprofit partnership, mm -hmm. was that just for that organization itself or was it open to members? Because if Erica and I missed, missed the nonprofit thing, I'm, I'm wishing we would have been able to make it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that yeah. was the one at the end of October, right? I was at the 26th and the 28th. And Adrian Regal, she's our board president. She's the, she did a training. Oh, for I was there the first day and not the second day. Yeah, she was. She she did a, a twenty minute, uh, I think twenty or thirty minute presentation. So she's a sociologist. Um, she's actually going to be moving out of Erie soon, but we hope to keep her still on our board, and maybe we'll expand a little bit to her new place in <laughs> the Midwest. We'll see. Um, but we, um, she does also works with some of our uh, again training initiatives, which isn't our main focus, but. Oftentimes we get called for that and, and we are prepared and able to do that. So we, it's always a, another avenue we'll kind of go into. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all part of the community. So um, yeah. I, we all could learn something. 
for sure. Yes. <laughs> in, in these areas. And so awesome. uh, this is maybe a weird question. Are you the are you the organization that was doing the movies at the Bourbon Barrel? Indeed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping it was a yes when I asked that question. I'm like, I don't know. I'm gonna look really yeah, yes. we're we're everything film in Erie, so that's yeah. us. Yeah, when we Erica and I hosted those, and we really missed them. Yeah, we do. That was great. Yeah. Did you? Did. Were you able to attend some? Of I, them? I attended a few of them. Yes. Ooh, As I mentioned, I have on the spot and ask you what you went to and how was your time. <laughs> <laughs> You can't now. Uh, I did, no, I, I only I did attend one, one or two. I would attend. I love film, so I would attend more. I except my small children sometimes keep me at home because I have a six-year-old and, and a two-year-old, which means that I end up watching Netflix and sometimes, you know, whatever's whatever's there. I'm a fantasy and sci-fi fan, actually. Okay, we show um, some good some good stuff in that. Yeah, in yeah. so that's sure. my I would say genre and documentary. My kind of my genres of of choice mm -hmm. people are are surprised when you ask me like what's your favorite thing i'm like give me some dystopia i am like <laughs> so so into that not i'm not so much comedy but dystopia <laughs> all right well when we return we will definitely uh definitely have some good picks in that area i'm sure be good. when we return that's when right. we return. That's right. Hopefully soon. Someday. Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Maybe summer. That's what I'm hearing. That would be nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. be when everybody wants to be inside again, you know, as soon as as soon as the uh, the restrictions come off, everybody's be like, "Yep, let's go inside and watch movies." <laughs> Did you guys ever do an outside one? Uh, we have. Oh yeah. Yeah, we've done some outside stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll show movies anywhere. That's right. Anywhere. All right. Well, Janelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been really, really great to talk with you. And again, I'm excited that you found the project. It must be doing so we must be doing something right in terms of promotion if you found us. So thank you. Absolutely. We'll stay in touch. Please. Yeah, and we'll help spread the word too. Thank you. That would be wonderful. Have a great night. Thanks so you much. You too. Guys, we haven't checked in for a while on the situation with the studio system, with film exhibition in our year of COVID uh, for a few months. So, so this is our little update. It's not great. Things, things aren't looking good would be the Cliff Notes version. So of course there were a number of films that were made before COVID times. They're completed and they were meant to be released in the theater, but Business is not so good there, which we'll get into in a minute. So some of you may have seen The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is on Netflix uh, by Aaron Sorkin. This was actually originally from Paramount, and it was supposed to come out in the theater, and they sold it to Netflix. There's also Greyhound from Sony, which sold to Apple. Coming up soon will be Coming to America, the sequel <laughs> with Eddie Murphy. Two. Two, coming to America, uh, which sold to Amazon for $125 million. There's also a new Michael B. Jordan, um, it's like a, I think a SWAT team action movie. Borat 2, of course, was originally meant for the theater. Then you guys probably, 
I was like, the woman in the window. I'm like, what movie was this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that Amy Adams movie that I remember seeing trailers for like a year ago. Oh. She looks out the window and sees something. <laughs> yeah that's right and she's the agoraphobic uh one it, it's like a take on rear window yeah but it's yeah. from joe wright like a, re- a director i really like so that one has just been sitting out there forever they sold that to netflix um so the question you may be thinking is well with some of these why not just wait right eventually theaters are gonna open up people are gonna go back to theaters and droves Well, uh, this is from Variety. You may recall there was a new James Bond film that's uh, had ads out for like a year and a half now called No Time to Die. And they tried to sell the movie to all the big streamers reportedly for $600 million and no one stepped up to buy it. Hold on. Time out. I believe it was actually north of $600 million was the initial wow. was the initial push <laughs> and 600 million was the number that i i, and I that was the discounted price <laughs> that was the negotiating price the well, bargain six, bin price 600 million was the price that apple was willing to give oh and they and didn't take it they didn't take it because the bond franchise and I, they feel so strongly that they're sitting on a massive hit that they think it's a bill they think it's a one billion dollar yeah. bond movie okay Okay, well, good clarification there, Mike. How the much thing, of that is Daniel Craig's? Well, probably I don't know, a good a good chunk, right? Oh, I bet you it's probably because it seems like I, he's I bet you it's fifty out. million. I, I, I bet you it's like fifty because yeah, fifty million for a 60? while, right? <clears throat> he's like, this is my swan song. I want the biggest payout. He, yeah. He's got the he's got the he's got that Tom Cruise contract where it's like it's not so much the front end money, it's the back end. Good point. Good point. So the additional pressure that um, No Time to Die has on it is they're paying $1 million in interest every month that this movie sits on the shelf. Just this week, uh, Universal came to terms with Cinemark on a new deal. Uh, And it's a little complicated, but at the end of the day, it is, I think, further evidence of the really showing the studio's might over the theaters. And uh, it's really pushing that envelope even further than it, uh, than it ever has before. So what Universal is going to do is they can put new movies on what they call premium video on demand, which PVOD for short, it's a mouthful, in as little as 17 days on that platform. Uh, the films have to generate more than 50 million. Now for films that generate less than 50 million, think your indies for the most part or your you know typical sort of oscar bait films that don't get the big marketing push cinemark will be able to keep them in the theaters for up to 31 days before they start looking at other streaming platforms so that's really a titanic like monumental shift in the way that things have been done in the past and this 50 million threshold this is an this is the opening weekend so this is, yeah it's not yeah. even like, um, yeah, so we're really only talking the, the, big, the big hits, like hits right out of the gate. So these aren't even like your word of mouth, like Academy Award movies and, and stuff like that. This is like your Marvels, your tent poles, your franchises. Yeah, or, or, you know, or your like big auteurs and stuff like that, your Spielbergs, your Scorsese's, your Nolans. 
that might be like it or your Tarantino. I'm trying to think like what was the opening weekend of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Was it even 50 million? I I believe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually goes on to be his highest grossing film. That or Inglorious. And uh, Once Upon uh, a Time in Hollywood had 40 million dollars. 40. It's opening. So it would it would have been following this deal if it came out this year. It would have been on PVOD in what seventeen days you said or whatever. Maybe. Well, here's the thing. You know, it's sort of funny because uh, once a, lo- a long time ago, back at the Erie Art Museum, you uh, showcased the film called Side by Side. Anybody who knows anything about a lot of the old, uh, a lot of directors in general, and this isn't just like the old school. Uh, uh, this is just the old school team. This is your Ava DuVernay, uh, your Spike Jones. Like they, they prefer to see, the, they want you to see the movie in the theater. And so, uh, it, you know, it will be interesting because I think you're going to get a, I think everybody understands that, com, you know, there's commerce to all of this and that business is business. There are some directors out there with a little bit more, let's call it might, and they, uh, I, I bet there's going to be a little bit of kickback from the artistic community in this, for good reason. So then there's the new thing that came out this year because of COVID, which is PVOD, which is premium video on demand. I think Disney calls it something else, like Premiere Video Premier, or something. Yeah. Um, so Disney Plus, now they, they've reached quite a milestone. They've got 70 million subscribers, 50 in the U.S., they released Mulan, which we talked about. You had to pay an additional 30 bucks on top of your Disney Plus fee. But they haven't released the numbers of, of how that went exactly for them. But they did decide their big family movie, animated movie, Soul, they've decided just to release on Disney Plus in time for the holidays without having you pay an additional premium, which is interesting. They've just crossed a big milestone as far as subscribers that they had been wanting to hit. Do you think part of that uh, has to sort of coincide with the news of Soul? Because if, had, they not, had they not hit that benchmark, I wonder if they would be doing the same thing that they did with Milan. Yeah, it's a good, really good point. So yeah, we don't know, don't know the numbers, but we'll see how that goes. IndieWire, um, they do a weekly box office report and kind of their one line is, it's looking like theaters are becoming the PVOD marketing device. You know, it's kind of like you do your soft launch now of a movie in a theater so that you can promote it coming to PVOD where you're actually going to make money. This is what made me really depressed, Erica, was um, these art. this is the season where the art house award-winning Oscar nominee movies are starting to come out. So like the best movies, you know, they're making about $300 per theater for an entire weekend, which I was like, you know, looking at the film grain numbers, right? We would be happy. Right. Some days if we cleared 300 bucks. Yep. And this is now a very relatable situation. Just imagine like, and we don't own our venue, right? So we don't have to pay Mm-mm. for electricity. Nope. Like staff, like we pay our staff, but like there is so much overhead with having a big brick and mortar theater. Right. Yeah. And you're only clearing, like this is Mank, like David Fincher's new film, which is like an event. It's making $300 at a movie theater. We might as well be showing Mank. For real. 
this is going to be an interesting year because I think that there's going to be a real push by the studios, independent and the, and the larger houses, to try to push their films because it's going to be their opportunity to try to get this in front of an audience. And I think that the, this award season is actually going to end up serving, for better or for worse, call it political or what have you, but like is really going to service these films that desperately need to find an audience. And uh, it's good. I, I think we're actually in for a very interesting award season because there's all sorts of dirty politics that go on behind the scenes. I'm a little nervous, though, about that sentiment, Mike, because like we talked about before, like how hard is it to like the interfaces of Netflix, Amazon, like they're they're terrible to navigate. Right. Yeah. Like if you're looking for something and you don't know the title, it's kind of like good, good luck. And if you're looking for an actual new release, good luck finding like an accurate new release section of those platforms. So Nomadland is just dropped on a service. Who's going to know it? Who's going to who's going to find it? Right. <laughs> I don't know if it's necessarily in service to the film or the filmmakers at all, at least the way the system's set up. Yeah, they're competing with the other genres. You come in and it's based on what you're already watching, first of all. They're not going to put Nomadland in front of you if all you ever watch is like reruns (laughs) of The Office. (laughs) And, you know, so you're not, you may see, maybe maybe you watch a lot of horror movies. And so you're going to see new horror films that are dropping. You know, it's really just it's not the right kind of algorithm that's going to give you the right, going to put the right things in front of you. I think that like something like iTunes, I know Mike and I will pull up iTunes to see, well, what's the latest, like the you know, what are the new, new releases, stuff. the what, actual the, new releases. Yep. Yeah. They're so a good that's, one. They're a good one to show you what's Cause they're new. all based around sales, right? They make their money right. from actually making money on one-off titles. They're not a subscription mm-hmm. service. So they have an incentive to actually do it right for people right. who want to find new stuff and pay for right. it. Right. Right. Netflix and Amazon, which is where most people are watching this stuff, mm-hmm. there is no incentive yeah. to put potential Oscar winner at the top unless it's getting the eyeballs. Like right now, everybody's talking about Queen's Gambit, which makes me super happy. Mm-hmm. But you can tell, like, I don't remember, Erica, when I when I was telling you about I, that I was watching Queen's Gambit, but now maybe it was like two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. It was probably three weeks ago, yeah. But it seems like now I see on my yes. Facebook feed, like everybody's typing about it. So it's about a month to three weeks yeah. before something that's organically a hit starts mm-hmm. getting into the public conscience, right? Yes, but I think Netflix is bringing it to the surface. So I don't, I, they're pushing it. They're right. pushing things to me that I don't know if I would otherwise be watching eat too. So What's there's an prob- example and has it worked? Can you think there's of an that example? thing about the tombs? Yeah, I know which way you're talking. John, you're asking for an example of when this, when them pushing. They're something- showing popular, like not just John, you've probably seen this. Netflix is showing. These are the hot things on Netflix, not just the hot things that you would like. Right. Yeah. Cause they don't usually, 
not, at least for me, the algorithm, like I, I think it's because like I watch stuff all over the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So the stuff that they put up on the, in the top header for me is usually just like, yeah, like general audience. Like this is our new, you know, I mean, Yeah, I watch I think Shit's that's what Creek, they're doing but it's now. like, here's Shit's Creek. Here's, you know, like, it's always like the stuff that's already in the, I think that they've had a few, uh, not so much in the US either, but like they've had a few successes uh, where it's like they've uh, helped finance and given an, an audience or a platform for shows that have caught on with people organically. Uh, and both of the examples that I can think of are actually international. One would be that really had a bigger audience in uh, sort of Western Europe, be it France and Spain, was Money Heist. Yeah, And then the, I couldn't the other get into Money Heist. I tried. I, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, and then the other <laughs> one uh, is Dark. oh yeah dark yeah yeah Mm. And I think those are two examples where uh, I think that they sort of, because they put so much out there and they sort of let, they sort of let it see who, what, what people find and dark certainly found an audience uh, in the U S I know that by the time season three came out more, I was talking with my friends about it and stuff like that. And so I, I know that that found an audience and money heist the same thing, but I don't, I think Queens Gambit from stateside is sort of the first, maybe the first like um, first American success that they've had with that sort of model Okay. All right. with a word of mouth, I should Yeah. say. Well, back to the exhibition side of things. I mean, like Tenant, it, it's made $355 million now in the world, 56 in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Don't know if it deserved it, but whatever, hey. It's Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't get into it either, by the way. That's the only movie I've seen in the theater since March. It's the only one I have too, and I, same, yeah. same. Did not love it, but whatever. Didn't love it, yeah. Yeah, like there's 3,000 theaters open now in the U.S. and the top 10 movies at the box office only accounted for $11 million, which is about 10 times less, um, you know, per average. Update on Wonder Woman. This is an interesting deal. So Patty Jenkins, of course, had a huge hit with the first Wonder Woman. It made like $800 million in the box office. They were hoping for... a billion dollars for Wonder Woman 1984. So they've just announced uh, it will be released day and date, which is what we used to reserve, you know, day and date for like uh, the movies that probably weren't going to be such such big hits at the box office. It's going to be coming out Christmas Day in both theaters and on HBO Max for no extra charge. So If you're a subscriber to HBO Max, or you could just sign up for a seven-day trial for free of HBO Max and watch Wonder Woman 1984, what do you think about this decision? I think if there was going to be, um, if there was ever going to be a sign that it's going poorly for theaters and that they are, as we said, they are as close as they could be to chapter 11, this is it. This Yeah. is, this is the, this is the sign that it's really bad. Uh, and there's still a few holdouts, obviously. Uh, but, um, and there's more chatter going on, especially amongst the Disney plus, uh, films that they're going to just go straight to the streaming service, but that the, at this point that the, to use the, uh, the Batman Bane reference, the back has been broken. This is the last thing they wanted to do. They pushed and they pushed and they pushed and they delayed and they delayed and they delayed. And I think 
you know, and I think for what it's worth, the I, I don't know if the production companies necessarily wanted to see this happen either. Uh, yeah. Because they, these are, these uh, Wonder Woman, I'm going to bet, is anywhere from like, cost like 150 to 170 million. That, two, I'm going to say, uh, the second one here. Uh, and they want to get their investment back. Uh, they're not going to. This is a, a little bit of the waving of the white fat flag, but this is really bad sign for the theaters and for your multiplexes and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, it's, I mean, from just an economic standpoint, this we're is just rough. talking. Yeah, this as we rough. talked about this movie, probably we're looking at like 400, 500 million dollar, like total investment when you include marketing. So they are look, this is looking at a loss and this is looking at the long term specifically the long-term game strategy of getting subscribers to HBO Max. They're basically now forced to use Wonder Woman 1984 as a tool, as the carrot to say, hey, sign up for HBO Max. Um, and Mike, to, for your Bane reference, I was wondering what would break first, <laughs> your spirit or your body. <laughs> wow that's good that was good that was good <laughs> you you knew the line totally <laughs> if you want your your subscription platform to get more people you would release it like exclusively on hbo max right if yeah. you're thinking long term that's what happened with probably with Mulan. That's what happened with Hamilton. That's how right. they got the parents of those kids. That's... Is Hamilton supposed to be in theaters? I don't believe so, actually. Disney, because Disney okay. went, Disney had- Oh paid... yeah, they wanted to put it in theaters. Of course you... they did. People wanted, everybody wanted to see Hamilton and not many people, it, this, it's a subset of people that are gonna make it to New York and see Lin-Manuel right. Miranda on stage. I did not, I'm so sad I didn't. <laughs> I really but wanted to, I got to see too. it, but I didn't get to see him. I think this Believe was part, reading about it, I, Eric, I, I'm just saying, if I'm remembering this correctly, I think that this was gonna be one of the big things to get people onto Disney Plus when it happened. Okay. I, I actually think this was always part of Disney Plus's game plan to get Disney, it. Okay. But it, I it, think it's that, a smart idea. But also I think that Disney would have released it to theaters had they had the opportunity to do so. Okay. Just because it was on Disney Why? Plus does not mean Why though? Why would Because in a normal in a normal was... economy, in yeah. a normal economy, why not release it worldwide in theaters just like um uh what masterpiece what are they show um theater the Brit, you're talking about the west end theater uh that they show yeah and stuff like that. yeah because because there's there's context that we have to get into a little bit i'm not totally convinced that the movie studios aren't loving giving it to the movie theater franchises right now there's always been a bit of a I don't want to call it a contentious, but a very sort of interesting relationship between these two entities, just uh, between AMC and Cinemark, between your Warner Brothers, DreamWorks, Disney, and stuff like that. They have not always gotten along. 
Sure. Now th there's a symbiotic relationship between them, of and course, they know that they're they know the only the... games in town, and the only games in town. <laughs> right. And, and what do you, you need to make the movies? We need to show your movies to get your audience, right? Right. And since the streaming service, has, there's a bunch written up in Variety, Wall Street Journal. It's kind of interesting since the streaming services have come into uh, prominence and more people are going there. The, uh, the, the theaters have been trying to raise the money on, on the major studios. So there is like, it's the game behind the game type of thing that's been going on. I'm not totally convinced. And I, I wouldn't be shocked if the production studios aren't loving what's happening a little bit they might see the, the longer game. Like we're talking, when you're talking millions of billions of dollars, it's not always just about the short term. And they might be finally getting an opportunity to get the, uh, the theaters to bend to their will. But with that point of view, it only benefits the big like three. Like all the Correct. other smaller studios, they're screwed right. because they don't have their own streaming services with millions of subscribers. That's yeah, a but big investment to start your own Netflix. Yeah, but all those smaller studios and stuff Actually like that. Actually not. I happen to be researching okay. <laughs> all of this right now. No, I, I will tell you, I happen to be researching this right now because I'm going through this process with a, um, with a client. It's surprising how um, not expensive it is to start your own app you could buy on. buy one for like fifteen hundred, and then you have to keep paying subscription fees, or so. That's how they do it, like the festivals, like the in a box festival. Yes, yes. You you, you essentially to keep yes. Paying. Yeah, you're 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 paying a um a monthly fee. But anyway, you can do that if you want, and you, you can have that. it for you can have it in perpetuity if you want to be. Somebody like a twenty four who uh, I think we all love very much uh -huh. that consistently puts out great product. They have probably what 20 films. Like nobody's going to subscribe right. to an A24 and watch the same 20, 20 movies over and over. Well, right? No, that's a good point. So what about a coalition? Like mm. where's the coalition at a time like this? Where's the coalition of independent film studios? You know, if you have all of these massive studios, and no one can compete with them. And then all of these small studios, yes, they might be competing with each other, but come on, like get together, get some might like and that realize idea. that you can share. Yeah, I mean, like in this economy, why would you not try to get some might together, share some knowledge, share some um, opportunity to, okay, get the cost covered. Why would you ever, like you're saying, John, you have 20 movies. You're not going to put an app together and you're not going to spend $200,000 to make something custom and then have to manage it and maintain it over time. But yeah, you could all throw in five grand a month or, you know, throw in money, pay five grand a month, support an app, and then say, here's the independent filmmaker coalition, blah, blah, whatever that is. Or maybe it's, um, what's the, what John Banco's son works for? Independent yeah, like IFC, IFC. IFC or already something. has a deal with IFC. Like if they just brought in like A24, Neon, like some of like the like film movement, like under Criterion yes. or something. They, ha they have a channel. They have some sort of channel that they put in that has all of these these other studios, then they solve a lot of problems and they and they market for them or these studios put in, they all buy into the marketing. That's what needs to happen.
you know what's Why funny? aren't they doing it? <laughs> Time out. So this is what's funny. Two things. One, this feels like it's history repeating. Back in like, I think like 1918, 1919, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks created United Artists, which like, this is important. Because oh, okay. They're, they're, so this no, makes no, sense. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Yeah. This, is, this is history repeating itself. RKO, uh, which, you know, uh, famous since, since we got Mank coming in. But what happened like to them? They ended up getting destroyed and kicked we, we, out well, of the You country. got where I'm going with this. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you and they United got Art- kicked out of the country. Oh boy! United, right? Well, you you got where I'm going with this a little bit. Like <laughs> this is not an original idea, Erica. And like it is a good idea in theory. The problem is, is that you have other you got these other powers that be that are going to it's business. Do not do not kid yourself. As much as we love the entertainment and the biz, uh, in the industry, it is cutthroat business and there's a reason that you have films like swimming with sharks out there sort of satirizing everything and then the other thing i would say is that all those independent studios tend to actually already be linked to the bigger studios like people uh people always would talk about miramax being an independent too miramax was owned by disney like all the all their shakespeare and love days and goodwill hunting that they were cutting a huge percentage back to disney I don't know. Now, I can't go through the list and I can't tell you who A24 or Metro or I can't tell you who they're all linked with, but they are connected to somebody. They have the contracts in place and where it gets difficult. I think A24 might be under Lionsgate or something. Well, there you go. And so, and then what gets difficult about that is all those separate production houses already have uh, distribution deals with a streaming service already. It's complicated. It's a big rat nest you know fuck up between all of them and stuff like that it's like and uh but she's right she does make a very good point why can't they get in line and uh sort of pull together and the reason that they can't pull together is because that behind closed doors because i think we all feel good about indie filmmaking and about that sort of that narrative we like to push like sort of the original content and stuff like that and so do the studios they like having these side projects they don't always want to be doing tentpole films but the reality is is that the marvels and the dc movies they make money the sequels make money right what people go to right now and uh films we've become so we've upped the ante so much and we've ratcheted up so much that it's like they have to make a lot of money. We, we, we've created essentially like the banks. We are if now had to too make, big to fail. If they have to make a lot of money and COVID has greatly accelerated. Yeah. Basically the multiplex may be going out. I think the multiplexes. I, I, yeah, I think it is. I do. What do you, what do you think? I, I, it comes back to, again, will we ever see another Avengers that's stacked with like 10 big name actors to debut on Disney plus on to debut on Disney plus. No, I think when you've got those type of movies, those listen, there's a good reason that paramount is uh, why they're holding on to the James Bond movie because a, it's sort of a, it's an evergreen timeless sort of platform. Like you'll still go back and you'll watch the Sean Connery, Timothy Dalton, Roger Moore, James Bond movie. They know it's like, we can hold on to this. Granted, we're going to be paying the million plus in interest every month, but cool. it makes sense. It makes sense for us in the long run. And they're probably. This is going to be a loss. Like people are going to, 
it's going to be a loss. You want to bet? I bet you it'll be a win in the long run because here's what I think. Do you think it'll come out in the theater eventually, or do you think we're going to see it on a streamer in the spring or just after the new year or something? I think, well, I think ultimately as we uh, sort of, as the vaccines sort of begin to take place, there's been good news in the vaccine standard uh, department. As the vaccines start to take place, I think at some point, if I was to guess, reading what I've read on the Wall Street Journal and stuff, that we are ultimately going to start contract tracing, which I know has all sorts of shady under. Big brother. Big brother, like I know that makes people nervous, it makes me nervous, uh, but I do think that we're gonna start contact tracing. And th there's reason to believe whether you look at the models in New Zealand and Taiwan, that you could actually make a, you could make a sensible argument for why it's a good idea. Uh, so I think that ultimately people will go back to the theaters. Now, I don't think the chains are, I don't think you're gonna have the multiplexes the it's way that- It's still gonna be them. some time, right? Like- Oh yeah, I think like, I don't think until next summer or next, right? next fall. Like, it's gonna what be a kind year. of business what kind of business mike can make three hundred dollars or let's say a great a great amount right now like like a thousand dollars on a movie for the next six months how what, how is that sustainable what they will have to do from a business standpoint is that all of them every single last one of them from our dearly beloved uh cinemark slash tinsel town <laughs> AMC, they're all going to end up having to declare chapter 11 to cease the seizure of their assets. And then what they're going to have to do is they're going to start picking, they're going to start picking off their markets. And this is going to get tough. This is going to get brutal because at the end of the day, what you might be looking at is a situation where the, sorry, but the likes of a city like Erie or a Fort Wayne, Indiana, or a, um, you know, a, a, to a Topeka, Kansas, mm -hmm. They might start losing their multiplexes. Yeah. That might actually end up happening, and they might. And this, in order to keep their business alive, they for a period of time, this the city like AMC might just keep their big branch theaters in larger metropolitan areas. Right. Which then again, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's loaded. Creator, it's loaded. From a creator standpoint, it sounds bad. Um, I don't think it necessarily is. It sounds from like a it's cultural history. standpoint. It sounds right. potentially bad. I think from a cultural standpoint, it's good. Like at the end of the day, I think that the uh, the independent filmmakers have been getting squashed out by the major uh, the major tentpole uh, franchises. You're still going to be able to find cinemas that will be able to go to that uh, where you'll be able to see that stuff. The world is not. But how are people going to hear about, like, without the marketing, this is what I think about. Because, yes, I, sometimes I'm in the mind of what you're saying, where, it, you know, the cream will always rise to the top. Right. But if you don't have the marketing dollars for your five, ten million dollar drama, um, and it's not Oscar season... Mm -hmm. you know which is really a small win it's maybe like a quarter out of the entire year is you know when the oscar movies come to small towns like erie right what are you going to do the other you know from an independent point of view what are you going to do the other i think enough months well, of the year <laughs> people will always go for uh will always seek entertainment and stuff like that and i think there's going to be a transitionary standpoint i don't think the cineplexes will stay close and by the way I'm, what i'm talking about is probably the next like two to like seven eight years this is like a long-term maybe, maybe maybe it's going to be 2021 <laughs> well, I, I i'm what i mean is like what's going to happen after the covid yeah because i think we're going to lose our cineplexes i honest to god do and i think what you'll end up having having and this is this might be like high-minded but you might end up having 
it might be interesting, regional films, ultimately. I, because I do think that people will always look for entertainment. We are Americans. Cinema is the language of the world, but you, America and France, I would say, are like, it is in our tradition. It is cultural for us to go see movies. And what, you, and what you might actually end up having is like, what, I think it will be history repeating on some level. It's like you might actually have films that do well regionally and that depending on the merit of that film, you might get word of mouth to spread that way. And it, it, the only difference is it won't take you know, months to a year, it's going to take days to weeks. Right. It's like, oh, you hear about this film that's popular up in New England? You hear about this film that's popular in uh, I mean, the I Southwest? Li I like that idea. I like that idea of, like, regionalizing. Uh, that's interesting. Um, and then it's kind of like the hometown spirit thing like you cheer for you know the Steelers because you live yeah in, I listen but. you're still gonna and again you're still gonna see the Avengers and all that kind of stuff I just think we're gonna right. lose the cineplexes so I, I, that I to me then and I uh I was gonna ask Erica about this is that gives me hope for because then I feel like then it becomes like the in, eventizing and kind of doing the dinner and movie thing that like we're doing yeah that's that's the way yeah, if the big multiplexes go away, that's yeah. what we're gonna have in the in the small towns, right? Is the art house theaters, the dinner and the movies, the film series. Yeah, and you'll still have, I think, the big films, but like they're gonna have to figure out a different way. And I just don't think, and particularly like if you just look at what's happening in business in general with people working from home, and like like right now in New York City and in Chicago and Los Angeles sky and there's a lot of a lot of write-ups about this skyscrapers and places that uh house a lot of in, uh uh headquarters for businesses and stuff like that they're getting crushed hmm. and because people are looking at it, it's like why why do we have to pay the overhead uh -huh. for you know building rent utility maintenance all that kind of stuff where right. we, can have, uh, we can sort of winnow it down we can keep our workforce most of them will work remotely and they're and people with particularly with children and as schools open up We'll, we'll be happy to do that. The same thing is going to happen to the theaters. We're, they're not going to want But then, then that comes back to the whole, if we're happy with just spending more and more time at home and stuff like that, that that's the part that makes me nervous then, is if well, things are more available on streamers and PVOD becomes the norm and stuff like that, maybe John, we just all become hermits. But no, no, no. <laughs> because there's always going to be, there's always going to be great examples of like, it, like one of the last experiences I can think about, it's like, you got to see this in the theater is something like Get Out. Like you're always going to have those films that it's just like, hey, this is a cultural film. Like this is a cultural phenomenon. Like that will always, that will continue to be a thing. Now it's sort of interesting that it seems like the horror genre right now more than any other genre is doing that, doing that well. And, and some of their fans are like, they're, they're like diehards. Yeah. And comedy, <laughs> How many yeah. different yeah. genres do you have that though? You don't really have that for like drama or comedy or I think you've got it for comedy. Uh, yeah. it, 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 it's just it's just it's just what did uh what did Richard Harris say? Uh dying is easy, making people laugh is hard. Uh like comedy, like Bridesmaids is an example of a, the Paul Feig, uh, Feig movie. Like that's an yeah. example of like people will still want to people enjoy the like laughing amongst their community and stuff like that it's uh so i think okay. that when so you're ho you're more hopeful than me because i i have to say i i'm starting to get a little nervous i think it's gonna be a rough few years uh the, the other reason i'm hopeful is that 
listen, it's going to be brutal and it's going to be, it's going to be a battlefield when it comes to marketing films. But the other reason I'm hopeful is at the end of the day, and I like to consider myself one, you've got a lot of good technicians out in the field now who no longer live just in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, or Orlando, Florida, and stuff like that, who don't want to necessarily be in those markets. And the technology has caught up tremendously to be able to sort of produce a professional, high quality, high caliber film. This is going to be a really interesting, like every, if you ever read the films of like Easy Riders or Easy Rider Raging Bull or oh, yeah. Rebels on the Back Lot, every his every, every this has happened before, before. This has happened before. Every twenty. It's going to be the independents that take it to the next step. Yes, every twenty. I just wonder years, if the independents, though, Mike, if the new independents are Netflix, Amazon. They might be. They might. Well, be. they they are not. Uh, they're switching away from the model of buying up independent artist stuff and moving everything in house so that worries yes me. <laughs> uh, well yeah and that's you know that's that's certainly part of it um netflix might... now pays pays terrible to movies that they acquire and now they'll sign yeah. like a seven or a ten year deal and you don't get paid until the end of your deal yeah how do you even know if netflix is going to be around in seven years how do we know they're not the next myspace and you don't get paid a dime if they buy your movie i think myspace would have myspace would have killed to make netflix's money well you know what i mean though. <laughs> i know what you mean i, mean, I know what you mean you don't I know get what you mean. paid Technology per stream changes. or anything what's that like you don't get paid per stream you don't you don't get paid anything their deals suck now they suck yeah. it's brutal <laughs> Because they're buying everything in house, and then you know they're, they're unless unless you're David stuff all the time. It's like unless you're David Fincher. Right. Wait, is that exclusive? Is that exclusive? So you can't put your film anywhere else. A lot of you times can... it's exclusive. Yeah. Well, I would never. I would never agree to that. I make zero money, and they have exclusive rights. Never. But it's for the ego, Erica. You get to say I'm on Netflix. And. I am absolute. I'm living in and a shoebox. And, and oh, I see. So the idea is, yes, I have a movie on Netflix, and so that allows you to go raise more money for your next Maybe film. The and that's next. the one that you get get. You know, that's crazy. That is a crazy way to do business. But this I is, guess this is capitalism. Netflix and Amazon <laughs> will continue to sort of like sort of screw the independent filmmaker, and then somebody like Google. We'll see a film at the Toronto film, like the at TIFF or at Telluride, and be like, "Hey, you know what? We've got YouTube. Why don't we sneak in there and start trying to make a better deal with these up and coming filmmakers? Right. And we can start undercutting Netflix and Amazon. This YouTube is, would be smart to do that. Google would be smart to do that. This is and this is what I think will happen. It's gonna again. It's gonna be a rough transition. I think the next couple of years are not going. There's going to be a lot of fog and a lot of murkiness, but it's just like, you know, in these trying times, let me tell you one thing that I think every American agree with capitalism works. <laughs> it's like where the money goes, somehow we steer right towards it. And they're going to recognize that there is going to become a vacuum. Well, you're, you're hopeful, Mike. I appreciate that. I am losing, I'm losing a bit of hope. I, I think it's going to be brutal, John. I do. I, but I, it's just, I'm just saying that it's, I, I, as you said before, I think that good stories will find a way to rise to the top. That's been our episode. Thank you to our guest, Janelle Newman. 
Make sure you follow the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. <laughs>